0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. My guest today, like myself, has a nickname that is derived from her last name. Like, everybody calls me Coop. Well, next, when I was little, I won for a few years. I had put my little league hat. I put my last name and first initial too close. So they called me Scooper, which I hated. But then years later, I grew up, and they called me Coop. And my guest, it's funny, her nickname is Duff, and her name's Karen Duffy, but I went to high school with a friend named Tim Duffy, and we always called him Duffy. We always just say that. But <laughs> she's Duff, and it's Karen Duffy. How you doing, Karen?
1: Oh, it's so great to see you, Coop. Yes. Yeah. My brother of the Garden State. Exactly. Very nice to see you.
0: Now, now, did you give yourself the name? When when did Duff occur? Because it's, it's something that, you know, We're around the same age. And when I grew up, you know, girls, girls, if we didn't have nicknames, you didn't call someone like, hey, you know, when did, when did you uh, get the label Duff?
1: So in seventh grade, my, I just transferred to Our Lady of Mercy in Park Ridge. And uh, my best friend at the time told the nuns that, no, you, her name isn't Karen. We just call her Duff. And, uh, and ever since then, all through school, um, there, I went with eight cousins and my four brothers and sisters, but out of all of us,
0: I was the one that, uh, Duff stuck to. Well, it's amazing. Cause you know, you, you're, you're become a celebrity and you're still called Duff and Duffy. And that's cool because it, it, it shows one that you're not pretentious. You're not like, oh, call me Karen Duffy. You know, that's you know, some people get that way. You know how it is. But um, what was it like, though? I mean, like on MTV and stuff, when it was like Duff and Duffy, did you like that? Or did you want to be called Karen?
1: No, honestly, I have this real, even before Karen became a pejorative, I mean, the name has all the charm of a rusty fishing trawler. It's just that hard, <laughs> <clears throat> rub against the wren. And I was like, to my mom, I was like, everybody else got named after a saint or an ancestor. We've got colorful names in my family. Aunt Good, Uncle Cookie, Uncle Sherry, Chickie. Like, we have very colorful names. And I was like, and I get stuck with Karen. So, no, in my family, my siblings call me Cannonball, but nobody calls me Karen. Um, Which has been interesting, Coop, because I was just at a... uh, a convention with Stoic philosophers in Athens. And, uh, you know, I'm very into Stoic philosophy and uh, I tend to find the lighter side of classical wisdom. And uh, my uh, fellow philosophy buffs, this human library of Stoic thought, had a really hard time calling me Duff. It was really hard for them. And I was like, get the stick out of your there." I mean, I, it is my name. It might be a dog's name. It might have negative connotations in England, but I'm comfortable with it. I'm much more a duff than a Karen.
0: See, that's good. Actually, that's what's funny, because Cooper all of a sudden became like a dog's name. Like I had friends on Facebook. They're posting, our dog named Cooper, and I'm like, oh, great. But uh, Now, tell me about this. Uh, I know, could you tell me about the, the, the convention in Greece? Were you a speaker there, or did you just go to yes. listen? Tell me about that.
1: So, uh, you know, when I got my gig on MTV and I realized like every day we have an opportunity to become less stupid. So, uh, I picked up meditations by Marcus Aurelius when I was in my twenties and it reverberated through me like a cherry bomb in a silverware drawer. I'm like, all right, I get this. So I really got into reading the Stoics and, um, I've written two books, three books, that really touch on on Stoic's uh, philosophy, and what it rings a bell in me is Epictetus, who's my main man. The whole thesis of this philosophy is, if you make beautiful choices, you will make a beautiful life, and... The other great notion is the dichotomy of control, which says we can't control what happens. We can only control how we respond. And I just became immersed and started taking classes and really going to conferences. Coming up, we have Stoicon on October 29th, which is free online, for, um, which is an amazing conference, stoicon.com, uh, Modern Stoicism. But uh, I'm really into it. I really am. I, I feel like my life, which is a great life, has been deeply enhanced by the reading the classical wisdom of the Stoics.
0: I want to talk about your life and a lot of stuff you've gone through. But before, a few other things I want to talk to. One, I want to talk about your book Wise Up, and that's your uh, that's your that's your third book, right? Yes. Now tell me about uh, that.
1: Fourth book. Um, so Wise Up is um written in the epistolary form written in letters um and i wanted the reader to feel so kind of embraced by love i essentially wanted to mug the reader with love and this book is about not just living your life but loving the living of life um so my uh, son stands in from the reader and each chapter is meant to be red hole, kind of just swallowed like a clam. And it's really about the joy of living and how Stoic philosophy, having a philosophy for your life um, is is, is critical if you want to live an incandescent life of purpose and honor. And it's funny, so I was with this, again, the greatest human library of modern Stoics. And they're like, how come you find all the funny stuff in Stoicism? It's because, dude, that's what I'm looking for. And you will find what you look for.
0: Well, now, if someone wasn't to read about philosophy, you know, if someone was just an amateur or just, you know, a basic, they didn't know anything about it. What would you suggest someone would do to build their own philosophy if if it was just something that they didn't want to put the scholarly time into it because sometimes we don't want to do that. We sometimes people just want a quick fix and then there's nothing wrong with that. But how, what would you suggest someone would do? Let's say I said, you know, I need to get a better philosophy in my life. How would I go about that?
1: Well, everybody has a philosophy of life. I mean, if, you know, the way you treat people, the way you treat yourself, uh, the way you set intentions. But I would say the book that blew the back of my head off uh, is uh it's called the Art of Living, and um, it's a translation of Epictetus written by Sharon Labelle. And Steve, every page has maybe five or ten sentences on it, but it is just so incredibly like radiant. It just ignites every synapse, and I like the fact that um, she did this translation to make stoic philosophy so accessible. And I would say that was really my gateway, was Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, which was a journal, and most people are familiar with Marcus Aurelius, um, but Epictetus was Marcus Aurelius' teacher.
0: So, okay, you have the speaking in Greece, you have your book, and you have The Greatest Beer Run Ever, which I saw is on Apple TV, which I have to watch this weekend because we have Apple TV. But for some reason, our cable box went out, so they switched our cable box, and the Apple TV in the living room doesn't work, but it works in the bedroom. It's very odd, but it's just like, I can't figure it out. But tell me about The Greatest Beer Run Ever, because you, you got a, you got involved in it, and it's it's with the Farrelly's, and you did Dumb and Dumber with them, But but how did this all lead up? I mean, tell me about the movie, because... It's funny, you know, my wife... My wife and me have completely different viewing habits. Like, she'll say she's going to watch something, and, and she does. And, like, Dahmer. And I'm like, you have, like, 20 network TV shows you have in the DVR. And so I watched that, and then she's like, you're watching it. But she saw it, and she was like, oh, my God, the trailer, I have to go, I have to see that. Tell me about the movie and how you're involved with it. Because it's, it's a fascinating story, and it's a true story.
1: It's a true story, Coop. And um, uh, I have a son, and I will... I have a disability, so I would hire a manny, a male nanny, you know, to just shoot pucks on him and rough him up. So my son's babysitter was a film student at NYU and his first film, his name is Andrew Moscato, he's a genius. His first film when he was a junior uh, called The Zen of Bobby V about uh, Bobby Valentine, the coach of the Mets, um, won the Tribeca Film Festival. And I was like, dude, maybe we just start a little company. So we started doing small documentaries. And one night, Andrew and I were out, and I introduced him to a buddy of mine. And I said, oh, this is Joanna, she's a journalist. And Andrew Moscato asked the greatest question. He said, as a journalist, what is the best story that you've never reported on? And she told us this story about how in 1968, Chickie Donahue, who was a sandhog building subway tunnels from Inwood in Upper Manhattan? Five of his closest friends in his neighborhood of Inwood, Inwood, um, that zip code had more people drafted to the Vietnam War than any other zip code because it was low-income immigrants, Dominican, Irish. So Chicky was a merchant seaman. He had his papers, and he just said, "I'm going to go see our boys." from the neighborhood and bring him some paps blue ribbon to let them know that we're thinking of them and this was you know when it, you know with in in concert with all the turmoil of 1968 so chicky gets on a munition ship works around the clock gets to saigon and i would say within the first hour meets his first buddy tommy collins um, so they crack open beers. He spends the night. They figure out how he's going to travel the country. He has 48 hours. Well, he gets stuck. He actually finds all four of his best friends. Um, but he gets stuck in Saigon. His ship left. And it's during the Tet Offensive. So it's a real guy did this. Chicky Donahue. And, um, Andrew and I made a short documentary again called the greatest year run ever, which is on YouTube. And, um, I sent it to Peter Farrelly and this was right after he did green book. And he said, all right, I've got two questions. Number one, is it true? And I was like, yes, I know all the men I've been working on this for a long time. And then he said, number two, do they all go to the same dentist? Because like, one's got a tooth over here, one's got a tooth over here. <laughs> so, Cupid has been incredible. It premiered at the uh, Toronto Film Festival. And as we speak, uh, Andrew is on his way to Rome because the greatest beer run ever is going to screen in the Vatican for the Swiss Guards. That's it's awesome.
0: Nuts. That's awesome. You know it's, so funny. know, it's so funny how just like one, you know, Things like that happen, like, you know, it's your Manny, and then this, and then it just blows up, and then, because you know, Farrelly, you know, you can get it to him, and then all of a sudden, this little passion project, which it was for you two, you know, because it's... You know, doc. who's going to see a short documentary? I mean, people now will see it, but when you make it, it's because you love it. And then all of a sudden, it's in a film festival. And that's amazing. I mean, that's just, that's going to make you feel good because you're, you're basically, you're, you're nurturing a project. I mean, it's, I mean, I know you have a son, but it's sort of like that documentary is also your son because you, you raised it.
1: Exactly. And it was eight years um, uh, working on this uh, from conception to delivery. But truly, you know, I was never attached to the success um, to me. And, and it's funny because Andrew and I, we come up with like stoic maxims to kind of help us through. And, you know, we, we made this during the pandemic. He is the main producer. I'm only the associate producer. So he was there. And I was just like, dude, our job is to cope our job is to be the good person when things aren't going so well. And if somebody was a jackass, we'd say, well, our job is to not be like them to be as far away as a jackass as we can possibly can in that moment. And again, these are all lessons that I learned through stoicism and in building a company and building a relationship. I find that uh, having a common language, uh, understanding the same values has been a great gift um, and I gotta say, Coop, to see Chickie Donahue and Zac Efron plays him—that uh, moment when they met, when uh, we're filming in the bar, and Chicky goes up to Zach, and Zach's a little more reserved, and Chicky's like, Yay, yeah, you're me," <laughs> and and Zach goes, "I'm you," and uh, it was funny. Chicky's like, "I mean, I, I don't understand. Like, didn't he memorize his lines? Why doesn't he have to do it over sometime?" He didn't understand that Pete likes many takes. So he was kind of ribbing, um Zach. And Zach was an angel. And I have to say, Russell Crowe, uh, he, he plays a war correspondent. And his grandfather was a war correspondent. Um, so he's phenomenal. And then Bill Murray plays the uh, colonel and the bartender. So the cast is amazing. But what's so beautiful is the story is true. And we were able... To honor these men who served our country in a way that we never thought possible, and every time we get together, we're all choked up.
0: Now, talking about true stories, how did you get involved in this career of yours? I mean, what were you? You know, you said you know as a kid you were Duffy You went to the Catholic school, but how did you? When did you? Did was there a certain point where you decided you wanted to pursue you know acting or modeling? What were your steps to? Building up then to getting to MTV, because, you know, I know, like, I've interviewed Alan Hunter, and back when MTV was brand new, they just, and he said his interviews sucked, then he came back and did it again, and it was good. But for that, no one knew what MTV was, you know, and no one sat there and went, you know, I'm going to aspire to be on MTV. Like, when I started doing comedy in the 80s, MTV was already on, and I'm like, I would love to be on MTV. Like, that was something you would aspire to, because it was, like, the hippest job, because you got to go to every... Great premiere and concert, and this by one they played music. But how did you, how did you, what was your path to get to MTV? Because it has to be very interesting.
1: It is. And thank you for asking. Um, I have uh, degree from Berkeley, and I am a recreational therapist emeritus. But when I was a recreational therapist, I'd been working at the same nursing home in the West Village since I was 12 as a volunteer. So, when I got my degree, they hired me uh, on staff, and Steve, it was the greatest job of my life. And I realized that working with an older population that had memory issues, dementia, attention issues, I realized that I had all the skills. Everyone was saying that MTV was shortening America's attention span. And I'm like, I know how to talk to those people. I know how to move my body. I know how to elocute. And so working at a nursing home for years and being a great recreational therapist gave me the confidence that I just made an unsolicited cheese ball video, sent it into MTV. I had never been on camera before. I'd acted, I'd done plays, um, but uh I sent it in on a Friday. I, I think that on Tuesday I had a screen test, and the next week I was a primetime VJ. So I was incredibly lucky. I was very humble. I mean, I was so broke; I didn't even have MTV. It took me a couple of months until I got paid, which I could then get cable. But um, I find if you have confidence in something that you do, you can use that confidence. And
0: all skills are
1: transferable.
0: Well, how do you prepare for that, though? You know, you sit there, as you said, you've never been in front of a screen, and I've been, in, I've been a background, and I've been in different things. I've been featured in different stuff, and and I was just talking to someone about this. Like the first time you're in camera, I remember I was, I, was, I didn't know what to say. I was like, uh, you know, and and then you get used to it. It's like, you know, the first time I did comedy, I was like, I was not nervous, but I was. But for you, it's in your head. You have to know that you've never been on camera except for the screening, the screen test, but mil- and millions, I mean, because people watch a lot of people on TV. Did that go through your head at all? Like, thinking that all of a sudden your life is going to completely change, even if you're on there. For you know, one year and you've advanced your career, but there's been people who haven't done anything with their career and people go like they end up on a trivial pursuit question, you know, or, or like a trivia question or Jeopardy, like he was Kevin Seal was whatever, one year, whatever. How to how what was your what was your mind when that that first that first time you were on M T V and you saw that light go on and you had to say, This is dub I mean, what went through your mind?
1: You know it's interesting? I didn't think that there were millions of people watching. And it's funny that you say that now because I was like, oh, holy smokes, I guess there were millions of people watching. Um, and my life didn't change. I still volunteered at the nursing home. You know, I still live in the same apartment. I'm nothing, I, I didn't have huge changes. The thing that changed was, I didn't change, but I think the way that people saw me changed. But I still have the same best friends and, um, and the, it was, I do remember feeling nervous and I understand that, you know, I looked up like the most, uh, like, like most, most popular fears and it's not bees or snakes or airplanes. It's actually public speaking. And if you have a fear, that's the number one fear. If you have a fear of public speaking and you were at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than be the one delivering the eulogy. So I think all the training of working with um, uh, the residents at the nursing home, I think I was impervious to embarrassment. Uh, one of the things that I learned through uh, Stoic philosophy is um, when I'm a jackass, I apologize, But uh, and, and truly the only time I think I should feel embarrassment is when I've been unkind and then I try and make it right. But I also understood that everybody gets nervous. And so I thought, well, how can I turn that jittery feeling where like your mouth gets dry? And what happens is, is when you're out looking at an audience, as you know, uh, you, you're looking at, it, it's a fight or flight, and we can control it, but we can't control the biological fact where our heart's racing, and what happens is our digestion stops because all the blood is going to pump to our um, muscles to make us run. So that's why we get a a dry mouth. And I just thought, okay, I'm just going to prepare for that, and then I'll see what happens. But I also had a career that I loved at the nursing home. So I knew, A, I felt like I snuck into a party, and I was just waiting to get kicked out. And I got to hang out at the party for a while.
0: Now, what was it like? What, do, you, do you remember the first time you got recognized? And that must be an odd feeling because, you know, and you talk to some, so many people, they strive to be, they want to be famous. But then when they become famous, they go, holy crap, my anonymity's gone. I I can't go, you know, because that's why I love interviewing actors because people recognize them. They'll get a good table, but they don't get swamped. And they'll say, you know, like Joey Pants said, when he works, you know, would work with Will Smith. Uh, Forget it. You know, like everyone knows Will Smith, but everyone knows Joey Pants, but not at the Will Smith level. But do you remember the first time you got uh, recognized?
1: I do, and I was, I was, I was kind of stunned that people were taking my picture and that they knew my name, uh, my uh, contract. They would just give me a six week contract and every 6 weeks they were, they didn't kind of commit cuz i guess they wanted to see how it was going. So i kind of they had me go to the Emmys and it was last minute. I ran to wardrobe, put on a dress, went to went to the Emmys. I went to the hot dog stand and bought like 50 hot dogs because everybody was in the Radio City and i know how hungry people are. So i had hot dogs wrapped in foil and i was just throwing them around and Metallica came on, and I convinced Steve Isaacs that we should have a lighter. And afterwards, we were up at the Rainbow Room, and I knew that my contract was up, and I just figured, all right, this was fun. I'll go out in a blaze of glory. And I was up at the Rainbow Room, and Howard Stern interviewed me. And I didn't know what Howard Stern looked like, but I was talking to this really naughty, funny, charming man, and... He just made me laugh, we were cracking up. And the next day, uh Michael uh Rothenberg, who is my agent, who's a comedy agent, he called me, goes, What did you do last night? And I was like, expecting that I was gonna get the boot. He said, No, 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 you've got a five year contract. And I have to say, it's really thanks to Howard Stern. I mean, I've written him thank you letters, um and uh because he really, I think when he acknowledged me and uh, we had that lovely five-minute chat, that was pivotal. And so I'm very grateful to Howard.
0: Well, it must be also great that when you sit down, you have a five-year contract. Because you know, you know you're know you in contract now. It's not worrying. I mean, you know, six weeks, six weeks, six weeks. After you're like, you know, as you said. So now, how does your career start developing? Like, how did you become a Charlie girl? Which, you know, because, you know, the funny thing is, and I'm me and my wife are guilty of this. We DVR a lot of stuff, and we uh, now because you can do smart DVR, we just break right through the commercials. But you know, back you know then, cable wasn't as big. There wasn't as many channels. A lot of people had the crappy cable boxes, or they still had the turn dial. So when you saw a commercial, you saw that commercial. Did they come? Because I know you were like one of people's 50th 50 most beautiful women one year, or people one year. Tell me all about that. Um, but- what's that?
1: But that was funny because um, I had entered the Ernest Borgnine lookalike contest at a local bar in my neighborhood. Um, um, and uh, and I won. I won as the two headed uh, Mikhail's Navy version of Ernest Borgnine, but I gave the soliloquy from Patty Ch- uh, Charkis, uh Hey Marty. And so uh, I was like, I'm ah. leave I'm a short, fat, ugly man. And whatever it is the tomatoes want at the starlight ballroom, room, I ain't got. So I paired her to the drunks and I won. And I was like thrilled because how many times do you get to win the Ernest Borg and I look alike contest? And then the next morning, my agent's like, ah, oh, People Magazine wants to take your photo. And I was like, What for then? I like, got oh, you. They <laughs> she's like my my agent's is still my agent. She was just here for dinner the other night. She is like, Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I guess it must be like, you know, they must be really running low on people because you're you're in that list. And uh so that was funny, but you know, I was more proud of I, I really wanted I remember writing Ernest Borgnine a letter and saying, Mr. Borgnine, I have the honor. I just won, I am your look alike. <laughs> I've also been nominated as one of the fifty most beautiful, so I want you to know. That you should consider yourself one of the fifty most beautiful women in the world. So I had pitched to people, let's do it with Ernest, uh, Mister Borgnine, but
0: that didn't happen.
1: But I did write a play about Ernest Borgnine.
0: Well it's Tell, me, tell um- me about <laughs> that because you know i I love the, uh, I love the er- I love the uh, McCall's Navy and I love Wally Binghamton because he was so annoying. And you look what? you look back at it, and I even like I'm, I was one of those. Uh, Kids, and I still remember, like, useless shit. Like, you know, I can name all the characters and the actors who played them on Barney Miller, but I can't Mm -hmm. remember this. But I remember, like, Joe Flynn, Carl Ballantyne, you know, with Michaelis Navy, Tim Conway. And uh, and Borgnine was just an amazing actor. I don't think he won the Oscar for Marty, and everyone says he should have, or... No, the, I think he did. Oh, no, the picture didn't win. He won the best. They said he should win. Yeah. So wait. So what was your play about? About because you know I don't mean I've never met. I've met a lot of people. I've never met anybody who wrote a play about Ernest Borgnine. Well, it's called the importance
1: of Ernest Borgnine, the importance of being Ernest Borgnine, and uh, a play on the Oscar Wilde. And um, my buddy Chris Farley uh, was. I was going to play Ernest Borgnine and Chris was going to play Ethel Merman. And so it was about the eight-day marriage between Ernest Borgnine and Ethel Merman. And uh, my friend Griffin Dunn, his father, Dominic Dunn, bless him in heaven, uh, got me this information that the reason why Ernest Borgnine and Ethel Merman were only married for eight days was she'd be like, well, the judge said, Miss Berman, you know, what's the reason? And she's like, Judge, every morning, Mr. Borgnine gives me the Dutch oven. <laughs> and so the transcript is like, Can you explain what the Dutch oven is? And as you may know, Coop, it's when you cut the cheese and then trap your partner underneath the sheets. And I thought, boy, that's a reason to love him even more. But, um, so uh, we, we never got the play off the ground, um, but uh, it was great fun that uh, Chris Farley also wound up uh, coming the next year with me, and he won the Ernest Borgnine with the contest. And I was like, dude, you're stabbing me in the back. And he'd gone to SNL, and he looked more like Ernest Borgnine than Borgnine. And and then he won. He goes, ah, oh, don't worry, baby. You know, maybe there's an Ed Asner lookalike alike contest
0: that you could. Can... <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. Good old Chris. Ed Asner. I interviewed him in studio when I was in LA, and he uh, we took a picture after, and he's joking around. And he gets that gruff, and he goes. Wipe like yeah. that smug fucking smile off your face, and I was like, "Oh my god!" That Azar just cursed me out, and I was in heaven because it was it was great. But how did you know Chris? Did you meet Chris before SNL, or how did you know him? Uh,
1: my buddy Jim Signorelli uh, did all the commercial parodies and uh, that SNL used to do before they went digital. So. Through Signorelli, I got to know Farley, and he was just a great guy uh Last week, it was our buddy, Jim Downey, who is a legend uh Downey started s n l and then wrote for Letterman and then went back to s n l um and it was great. There was a lot of people in the room who loved Chris, and so we were just talking about him. I got to check in with Tim Meadows and it was just great Tim Meadows, truly is a man of sterling integrity and a loyal friend. And it was really great to see him again. I hadn't seen him in a long time.
0: He always kills it when he's on the Goldbergs. He's so funny. I, that character, he's just, he's one of those guys that's just so good. Like, you, he just, he he knows that character. And then it's great when you see people like that. So I want to, but you, you didn't tell me about the Charlie girl. I want to hear about the Charlie oh, girl because okay. I remember the so, Charlie, you know, the commercials. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was Bobby Short. And... uh uh, I think Shelley Hack was the first Charlie girl. And then uh, my friend Cindy uh, Crawford, she was the Charlie girl. And uh, I think I was the last one. And uh, so it was because I was on MTV and uh, they Revlon is an amazing company and they hired me as the Charlie girl. And I guess things went well. Uh, and then they hired me to represent at one of their cosmetics line called Almay. And at that point I got really sick. This is when I was, when I left MTV, um, I was quite unwell and it took two years to figure it out. And I felt like disclosure is a tricky thing when you've got a chronic illness uh, but at that point, I was on chemo and was on steroids, and I just had to say, hey, I am not that tomboy, get yeah, me and you hired. I mean, unless you're going to make an aftershave, because this steroid has given me a, uh, a really, uh, it's given me quite a mustache. So uh, what was incredible was Revlon said, you know, we hired you for your inner beauty, which was lovely. And uh, they kept me on for another like 15 years, and I greatly admire how much uh, money they've donated um, to women's health. So, yeah, it was a great run. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, and you know, it's every day. You know, it's up to us. You know, we are our the decisions that we make. Uh, they say our soul is dyed the color of our thoughts. So I feel like I lead with gratitude. And then I am determined, brother, I don't let things go until, you know, I, when we were doing a um, beer run, I just kept saying to Andrew, brother, there's no plan B. There's just plan A over and over until we get this movie out and honor these guys. And how lucky that it worked out so well. And it was, um one of apple's top releases which is great and the thing is with apple it's not about selling seats the first weekend so it's a brand new uh model so i'm very grateful for that
0: Now i want to talk to you about you know your disease and i talked to different actors who you know evan handler was had, his, had a successful young pro career then he had cancer um scott valentine who was on uh, family ties he was, yes. he was had, you know, this thing, and then he got hit by a car and like broke every bone in his body. I've gone, I went through congestive heart failure 11 years ago and I was better. I, I, I jumped back. But when I moved back here, um, they, my, I'm re- diagnosed with a uh, irregular heartbeat. So I, I was in the hospital for nine days and, and I know yours is, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's not curable. Like for me, I knew when I, even, I mean, I was close like I'm lucky I did go to cardiac arrest, but I knew if I was just smart and I just listened to the doctors and I you know and I wasn't that asshole in the hospital was bitch just sat there, I was like the perfect patient. My wife would come down and we'd watch Jeopardy and she'd drive home. I knew I would eventually get better. And and I knew also I was getting married in September. And my whole joke to her was, Oh well you know, I have to get better because you know the deposits are non refundable. Ah. So I always did that. But that I know. So tell me about how you found out about your sickness and and how you really overcome it just to keep positive. Because, I mean, you know, I see people who bitch when they have high blood pressure. And I'm like, dude, I've had I've had five cardioversions and two and a half ablations and I don't even don't even phases me. But tell me about the the path of what happened with you. And, you know, was it was your last night? with Clooney at the Emmys? Was that something that, tell me about all this because it fascinates me that you're so positive and you've gone through a lot and you still strive to be busy and you, you don't play the victim. Well,
1: um, Chris Farley introduced me to uh, George Clooney and um, at the House of Blues in, in LA. And uh, Clooney, um, because we were friends, he would invite me to go to a lot of events because he knew that I wasn't going to jump on his lap the minute a camera came around. So I went to a lot of different swanky events, but we were, I think we were at the Emmys and, uh, it was, it was a great night. I think he won. And I had been working on a show with Michael Moore that had won. So it was a good night. And I, when I woke up, I was like, Felt like I had a bolt of lightning. Just, I, 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 it felt like truly like an evil parrot with a razor blade beak and these dagger claws were just pecking me, and I couldn't understand. And I was like, did I have too much of the old loudmouth soup? And um, it wasn't a hangover. It was. I flew right back to New York. Went right to my doctor, who sent me right to the hospital, and my whole life changed. And it's amazing because there's a, a, a photo of uh, Chloe um, I mean we're, we're just you know somebody just took it and I was like that's the last day of my healthy life and I figured, well that's really going out with a bang like you know going out and having that memory so um, I've been living with this chronic uh, it's called sarcoidosis of the central nervous system and it is uh, pretty much epidemic Uh, with black women um, they are often hit harder um, and uh, sarcoidosis is where the tissue soft tissue anywhere you have it your lungs mainly I have it in my brain about 3% have it in your brain so that your tissue becomes uh, granular like like sugar rather than these soft permeable cells so I have like a nugget in my brain about the size of this golf ball but what happens is your skull is a contained environment. So as this lesion was growing, it was crushing all the nerves, which caused all this chronic pain. So I don't have feeling in my hands or feet, um which is a, an adventure uh in just trying to type um and just having hair or like anything touching this part of my neck. It so I'm really more of a chronic pain patient that lives with sarcoidosis. And what I realized coop is like pain's inevitable. And as you know, we are all going to face pain, but at some point suffering can be an option. So I realized that that every day uh, I have a choice to be useful or useless and that uh, I have to, care for myself. Uh, I'm not going to Rome for the screening in the Vatican because I need to take care of myself. I've got to start a new round of of steroids. The the pain is hard. Living with chronic pain is not for sissies. Um, The word pain comes from the Latin crona, meaning punishment or penalty. So living with chronic pain is like serving a life sentence for some, for a crime you didn't commit. So... um, what, the way I manage it is I stay distracted. And the way I stay distracted is keeping busy. And I can associate produce from my home. I can write books uh, with my comedy partner, Francis Gasparini. Uh, we work together. And, you know, it's it's up to us, you know, to squeeze as much as we can out of life.
0: But how do you keep so positive? I mean, you know, I mean, and I know it's it's a, you've probably been asked this a lot, and but you know, you as you said, your the last picture before pain was you and Clooney. Well, you know, your life changed, but you've kept busy. But how did you keep a positive attitude? Because was there any time that you wallowed in in your pity? I mean, there's got to be something. And Absolutely. what pulled, what pulled you out of that? Because you know, it's not like and it's, it's not like you're sitting there and you're, you're a guy who loves washing dishes and then he breaks a finger and he can't wash dishes. You know, you're a celebrity. You know, you you've had a good life and you still do. But it's something that you, I mean, how did you pull yourself out of being wallowing because i think wallowing is we all do it we've all done it and if people say they have it they're full of shit but what was your passage of pulling yourself out and just saying okay you know what was it your was it your upbringing or what was it it's an interesting
1: question um because this this diagnosis is so rare that it took such a long time uh to figure it out so I was really just treated for pain and inflammation and I realized that my life my profession my fertility my income everything was going to change because I my I you know I, I worked with my body I was an actor you know a model and I was on a lot of steroids and I will tell you Uh, being on chemo and steroids is not a beauty treatment but um, I really tried to stay as steady as I could I didn't want to fall into a hole of depression that I couldn't get out of so I went to a shrink who studies the psychology of illness in women and it took me about a year to get myself there because I was so busy just trying to stay alive and what I realized is having a sense of purpose. And that's what keeps me going. You know, I do have a backbone of faith. Um, but I would say the wisdom of classical, uh, the classical wisdom of Stoicism, Stoic philosophy almost built a scaffolding around me. And Stoic philosophy helps me think when I don't know what to think. I've memorized the maxims and um, I have, uh, I understand that all of us, Plato said, be kind for everyone is fighting a hard battle. So I understand. I remember when I was first diagnosed and I was in a taxi and coming back from the hospital back to the West Village and just looking at all these people and I'm like, boy, they are, they don't know how lucky they have it. And then I realized, I'm lucky too. I'm in the back seat of a cab, and I'm still breathing. Um, So the thing is, it's interesting, Coop, because when we use words about illness, we use a lot of war-like metaphors. Like, you're going to fight this, and we're going to battle it, and we're going to blast it. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm the lover, not a fighter. And if I hated this pain that is my constant companion, I would hate a lot of my life. And this is the only one I get. So, uh, I think um, I had to overcome the shame. It's very embarrassing to be have a chronic illness. Um, and that was hard. Coming like, I, I was ashamed of extracting the resources of worry from my friends and loved ones. Um, I was ashamed that my life didn't turn out the way I thought it was. Um, But then I kind of understood that uh, while it's chronic, I can, for as long as I'm alive, I am going to live. And I think I may have even, uh, Marcus Aurelia says, the obstacle is the way. What impedes us inspires us. So the fact that every day I have to climb over this mountain of pain in order to get anything done I often overshoot. There's a famous story about an orator named Demosthenes uh, in ancient Athens. Uh, he was a well known orator. But when he was a lad, he had a terrible lisp, and his parents died, and his guardians stole his fortune. So Demosthenes shaved half of his head, went into a cave, filled his pie hole with pebbles, and practiced elocution. And by the time he spat out that last pebble, he was able to go in front of the court and front of the Roman Senate and, and argue his, uh, inheritance back. So the idea is almost when you have an obstacle, it can either impede you or inspire you. And I'm trying to choose inspiration. It doesn't work every day.
0: Now, is that why you started writing the books? just because you know to inspire other people and to just give give your insight. I mean, you know, that's I mean, is that what when you started you said okay, I can if I can help one person that's that's good. Is that why you started writing?
1: You know, that's exactly. I was writing when I was at MTV. Um I was writing for different magazines. I had a few columns and I had written a book of essays. And when I went to sell it to uh my uh, literary agent who's amazing david vigliano uh he handles a lot of comedians and um vig said this should be your second book but your first book should be about what it's like to live uh what it's like to kind of have what every girl dreams of and then to have it all taken away and i didn't turn it into that um but I wrote Model Patient, which is a New York Times bestseller, and I love the challenge of writing. I love I often do negative uh stimulus, so I'll turn on like you know Fox News or something in the background. I'll say, okay, I can't turn that off until I've written something that makes me laugh or smile. Um, and uh, I having a collaboration uh Francis Gasparini. Met, we met as writers on uh, Michael Moore's TV Nation. So uh, we work together and and it's great. Every day from one to three, we're writing. And uh, our new book, Wise Up, um, is landed at Amazon bestseller number one in philosophy and humor, which was quite a feat. um, The fact that, you know, people are getting it. Um, the only thing is I hate my mug on the cover. Um, so yeah. hopefully, eh, you know what? I feel like men wouldn't buy it. And the thing is, this is about like, like it's funny and it's naughty and it's cheeky and it's a great quick read and I'm really proud of it. Um, I just wish it had a, I don't know. So when I was at, I was uh, in Ireland at a book fair and all I did was just draw mustaches on all the books, and I bought googly eyes. And then when people would come up, it was amazing. We sold out every book on the island of the uh, country of Ireland. And uh, I was like, "Do you want me to sign it?" They're like, "No, no, no, just knock out your teeth and draw more mustaches."
0: So that was that. That was, that worked
1: out well. Made me happy.
0: Now I have to ask. I I I was watching some of the clips, and I love the movie. How did Dumb and Dumber come about? I know you were with Mike Starr, and it's funny. My I know Mike Starr from a girl I dated a long time ago in L.A one of like her baby father or whatever was like really good friends with mike and i met mike you know because he was like not the godfather but it was close and i met mike and then mike did my show and he's such a great guy and then you know he's so different he's so different than the characters he plays you know because he's he's nothing like that he's a very gentle giant but how did how did dumb and, and Dumber, his, wife, his wife's a surgeon his wife
1: is like that. a yeah, brain surgeon. A heart surgeon
0: yeah or some kinda of, so tell me about Dumb and Dumber and and acting with Mike because and is that how you met the Far is that how you met the Farley brothers or
1: so um uh Michael Rottenberg from uh Three Arts gave me a script and it was called A Power Tool Is Not a Toy. And it was so funny. And I was staying uh in LA for a bit at the Chateau Marmont and I said, you know, hey Michael Can I meet this the guy who wrote this? Because I just love it. And I just want to, you know, buy him a beer and tell him how great it was. And that was Peter. So Peter Farrelly came over and um, he was wearing this acid-washed car coat. And I flew my best friend in because I was being courted by a gentleman who sent me a hundred dozen roses. And I told my best friend, I was like, I'm sending you a ticket. You won't believe it. I was like you want to catch a bear, you set a bear trap. You want to set a man, you set a man trap. So she flew out, and we meet Peter, and he's just cracking up at all the flowers. And my friend, my best friend who lives upstairs, uh, we've been best friends since we were twelve. Uh, she's she just kept mocking his acid wash coat. He's like, "What are you talking about? I'm going on a date right after." And 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 she's like over my dead body. And so she wrestles into the ground, pulls the jacket off. And he actually, when it was on his first date with the woman he married, uh, Melinda Cochise. So I met Pete and we had a, just a roaringly cheeky good time. And um, I was gonna play the girl. And I tried, I was asking everybody like, like trying to get Chris Farley or Fisher Stevens or Matt, uh, uh, Matt Dillon everybody I was like you've got to read the script and then Jim Carrey who's an absolute doll He did that pet detective and then he said he would do it and then he had an idea his future wife played the girl and so uh, And and I was like dude to Pete I was like dude, I'm thrilled. I mean You're getting your movie made I, at this point. He was selling round towels on Venice Beach so you didn't have to move to get pan. And uh I said, I would do craft services on your movie. And he said, Well, there's a role for a guy, but can you play it? And I was like, Sure. So that's how I got cast as uh I think it's JP Shea. And um and I got to work with Mike Starr every day, who's a legend, and uh it was funny, um when we were filming at the airport, um, G- uh, Jim Carrey was fell down, and everyone thought he was joking. You know, like this is him doing a pratfall. And then at some point, we realized, no, no, he's really, he's really sick. So the medic came, and as they were wheeling him onto the meat wagon, uh, they assessed that it was his gallbladder. And I was like, Jim, can I have your gallstones? And as they wheeled him off, he said, Yes. He was in the hospital having emergency surgery. I have to give it up for Lauren Holly. She was amazing. She rented this sexy nurse's suit that fit like the skin on a grape. And I'm like playing the guy. I'm like, hey, I'm in overalls and I'm like, hey, Jim, do you have those ball gallstones? And he's like, uh, I gave them to Lauren. I was like, I was going to make her earrings. Um, but they were beautiful. I have to say, as a human oyster, Jim Carrey makes beautiful gallstones. They look like malachite, green and black. Um, so it's been a joy that 22 years later to that Peter, you know, looks at our short of that Andrew Moscato directed and the amazing thing I'm uh, the woman who wrote it, Joanna Malloy with Chickie Donahue. Um, I'm godmother to her child. So it's just a great family sense. And Pete's an amazing director, and I'm just so proud of his success. He uses the same crew, the same, like, first assistant director was the same guy on Dumb and Dumber, his first movie. And he just, it's, it's beautiful the way that he really is such a benevolent, lovely
0: guy. Now, you've met so many wonderful people in your career and you've gotten to be friends with a Clooney and and Fisher Stevens, who's such a great actor. And, you know, the late Chris Farley was brilliant. But did you ever meet anyone that just blew your socks off? Like you went, oh, my God, I just met this person. Because, I mean, when you meet, when you get used to meeting celebrities, you know, it becomes normal. And you were you're a celebrity also. But there's anyone ever that meet that you were just in awe of?
1: Um, uh, I, I always, you know, MTV's the bottom rung of the ladder of entertainment and I'm happy in the bottom rung and I'm very happy that, uh, I have this career where now I'm behind the scenes. Um, I would say, uh, the last Friday of the Obama administration, the Obama's had a party, um, and they invited, I think, 300 people. 200 people were friends of the Obamas. The other hundred were friends of Malia and Sasha. And going to that party at the White House was unbelievable. Seeing Chance the Rapper, seeing Charles Barkley, um, I was uh, it, it, that was that blew me away. Like you know, Eddie Vedder meeting um, President. Obama and our first lady Michelle Obama was something that was incredible. Um, so that really blew me away. Um, the other is Herb Albert. I'm a huge Herb Albert fan. And uh, that's probably the musician that I have seen the most. And getting to go see him at the Carlisle. I mean, I, I, like, I'm there so much that he, he and his beautiful wife, uh, Lanny Hall, know me. And that's pretty amazing seeing somebody like, like Herb Albert.
0: So what's the future for Duff? What do you see in your future? You know, I mean, is there more books on the way? Is there more producing? I mean, what, what do you want to do? I mean, knowing that, you know, you're behind the scenes now and you want to make a difference and you want to inspire, which you do, what, what are you, I mean, and you speak, which is great. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you do some keynote speaking, which is always, wonderful when people can make a difference. I, I'm friends with the original Philly fanatic, Dave Raymond, and he speaks. And uh, He he does. He was just, I have a business podcast. He was just on, I've interviewed Dave a few times. And when he speaks, he really, it's the power of fun. And he really nails mm-hmm. it down and he's brilliant at it. What What do you, what, what, what are your goals in the next few years? If, thank
1: you, uh, Coop. You know, a wise person told me to always have a five-year plan and uh i'm working on another book uh with francis gasparini about um stoic philosophy because everyone has a life philosophy and uh being connected to this community of stoics has truly helped me in every way become More enlightened, more compassionate, more generous. It's given me the confidence. So I've got another book. I'm working on a a documentary and there may be another film. And it's nice because I get to work with a lot of what I do, Steve, probably what you do is like put people together. Like, I, you know, what I do is like, you know, put Andrew Moscato and Peter Farrelly together, give them the script put some petrol on it, light the match. And then, uh, so it's not a lot of heavy lifting. Um, but I think, uh, you know, finding, having, having your purpose. And it's so easy because really having your purpose is having something to love, something to do and something to look forward to. And so, okay, today I love my dog. Uh, you know, something to do is spend time with you, whose podcast I listen to all the time. You're always in my ears. And then something to look forward to is uh I'm gonna talk with the Oprah book editor at six o'clock. So it could be small or it could be big, but always remembering, I think this is so smart. having your purpose is having something to love, something to do, something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. I kind of I feel like stoicism helps me understand that.
0: Well, there you go. That's perfect. Now, now, how can people get in touch with you? I know you're on you're on Twitter. It's at at, yes. Duff, at Duff Lambros, D-U-F-F-L-A-M-B-R-O-S, mm-hmm. and
1: then and um, I think no, you know what? I'm at um, at Duffy NYC at uh, on Twitter, and I have a website. Uh, it is uh, wiseupstoic dot com, and we have all sorts of resources. Uh, about stoicism about pain management about sarcoidosis we tried to cast a wide net and i'm very proud of it so uh there's a lot there so definitely check out wise up stoic
0: so people go check out karen follow her on twitter go to amazon and buy her books all of them why not you yeah, know, it's, it's, it's winter's coming up. You're stuck inside. Uh, go to my, my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 930 episodes there. Uh, you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net at Twitter. I'm at coopertalk. Remember I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.